Well, good morning, church. Uh, if you haven't yet, go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke 10, which was just read. That's where we're going to root ourselves this morning if we haven't met. My name is Joe, and I serve as the campus pastor here at Midtown. And as we get started this morning, I have a question for you, a question to start us off. How many of you do things better or faster when you have a deadline? Right? Like, like when there's a sense of urgency behind uh, what you do, uh, how many of you work better in those situations? Okay. Some of you, I think many of you are not being honest. Okay. Um, a few years ago, my family and I were selling our house because we wanted to move closer to the church building. Uh, we lived in a house that was built in 1896, not 1996, 1896. I see, I think some of you were in the second or third grade in 1896. Um, <laughs> But no, what I'm saying is it was an old house, okay? It was an old house. We had, we had all of these ideas of things that we wanted to do and stuff that we wanted to fix up. We lived there for about four years. We did some things. We did some things. But um, we, uh, we definitely talked much more about what we should do than we gave time to actually doing those things. We talked a lot about, oh, we should do this and do this and do this. And then, you know, the time that we actually did things were, were, were very small. But then it came time to sell the house. And all of a sudden, my wife Whitney and I could have had a show on HGTV. We were fixing everything. We were tiling. We were doing siding. We were painting. We were doing absolutely everything. We did more in three weeks than we had in four years in that house. Uh, we finally made it the house that we wanted to live in just in time to move. Like, just in time. Okay, now we're going. And for four years, we just didn't have the time. But the last month, we made the time, right? We made that time. And I think all of us are like this to a point. When I was in school, I lacked the ability to start writing a paper more than a day before it was due. I, uh, I did not know how to study any other time than the night before the test. And some would say I didn't know how to study then either. Um, we, <laughs> we don't clean our house unless somebody is coming over. Uh, if I'm, vacuuming, if I'm vacuuming, my kids are like, Dad, who's coming over? And I'm like, listen, I don't need that attitude from you. Like, that is not okay. I, I lack the ability to write a sermon before Thursday. Like, I could have all the time in the world. My brain just will not, will not do it. So urgency matters, right? Urgency matters. When something becomes important or urgent, we prioritize our time and our lives around that thing. In our text this morning, we're, we see Jesus sending out a larger group of people on mission, and they're on mission to heal people and to proclaim the mission, uh, or sorry, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And what, what struck me this week as I was looking at this passage is the urgency that's present in the text. Jesus says to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Uh, he, he tells his followers, the people that he's sending out, don't bring any supplies with you, and don't greet anyone on the road. There is urgency in this text to get this message out about the kingdom to people. They need to focus on it. They need to know that this is the message and there's urgency uh, to do it. King Jesus at this point has set his face towards Jerusalem. And he has set that to do the work of ushering in his kingdom, his kingdom, which, by the way, is going to be over the entire world, over all of the cosmos, and people need to know about it. They need to know about it. And so he is sending his disciples out. And church, here's the thing. That, that priority of the mission of the kingdom of God has not changed. Even two millennia later, 
It has been 2,000 years since the events that we read about in the book of Luke this morning, and yet our mission largely remains the same. As a follower of Christ, you have been welcomed into a kingdom that is otherworldly. There is nothing like it in this world, absolutely nothing like it. And now, as a citizen of that kingdom, your primary mission is to help welcome others into that kingdom. But we have to be honest. This is the point where where our culture and our lifestyles can tend to clash with the mission of God, the urgency of the mission of God, the importance of the mission of God. And we need to be honest about that. We are are participants in a self-obsessed culture, not only self-centered, but self-obsessed. We are told and we tend to believe that the answers to a happy and fulfilled life are found within. We are told and we tend to believe that we should root out everything out of our lives that doesn't bring us satisfaction, just get rid of it. One of the things we avoid, like the plague, is feeling awkward or uncomfortable. That's like the chief sin in society. Don't feel awkward or uncomfortable anywhere you go. But the problem is when we get so inwardly focused, we lose focus of what is actually going on around us. We lose sight of our neighbors. We lose sight of our friends, our family. We lose sight of the cosmic reality that overarches everything that we see and we experience because we're so inwardly focused. We chase things that will bring us comfort and happiness, or we think that will bring us comfort and happiness, and and we lose sight of something far more important, something far more urgent, which is our mission. Everything that we can chase on this earth will end with this earth. It'll stop. It is finite. It will not follow us to the grave. However, the mission of God will echo into eternity. It literally changes eternity. It is the only thing that is worth laboring exceedingly hard for. Think of it this way. If you somehow stumbled onto the cure for cancer, like just one morning while you're eating your cinnamon toast crunch, it just came to you. You wouldn't just sit on that information. You wouldn't. But you would reorient your life to get that information to as many people as you possibly could, right? Well, as messengers sent by King Jesus with the message of the kingdom, you have been given news that is actually far better than a cure for cancer. You have news of a cure of the very thing that caused cancer in the first place. The very thing that is behind all of the death and all of the sickness and all of the evil in the world, and that is a cure for sin and all of its far-reaching consequences. Jesus is ushering in a kingdom in which death is a distant memory, in which there is no mourning, a kingdom in which every tear is wiped away, a kingdom with perfect unity, a kingdom with no injustices, and best of all, a kingdom that will never end. A church, it will never end. And you are messengers of that kingdom. You are messengers of that kingdom. You have been given a monumental and joyful task to be the proclaimers of that kingdom in word and deed to a world that so desperately, desperately needs it. So in light of that this morning, I'm going to preach a message that I have entitled Royal Messengers. Royal Messengers. You are royal messengers. We are messengers of King Jesus, every one of us who follows him. And as we walk through the text this morning, we're going to see some implications and some applications for us as believers. So let's jump in. I'm going to have three, three sections this morning. The first I am calling the royal mission. The royal mission. Let's start with verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1. 
After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, in every town and place where he himself was about to go. All right, so our verse starts with, after this, which means we need to look back and see, okay, after what? What is he talking about? Well, Jesus has just gotten done talking about the cost of following him. If you remember two weeks ago, I believe Gavin preached this message, if I remember correctly, uh, that to follow Jesus means that he needs to be primary in the life of the believer. That nobody who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When, when we follow Jesus, we don't hedge our bets, we go all in. Jesus is primary. That's what Jesus has just been just gotten done teaching his disciples. And so after this, Jesus then sends out 72 of his disciples into every town and place where he himself was about to go. He was going to end up in all of these cities that, these people, that, that his disciples were going to. Now, if you remember at the beginning of chapter 9, which was a long time ago because chapter 9 is a really long chapter, uh, Jesus sent out his disciples much the same way. But now he's expanding this proclamation crew to a group of 72. Now, we don't know exactly who these 72 were. The Bible doesn't really give us much of an indication of who they were other than they were disciples and followers of Jesus. But what we do know is that Jesus is expanding the work of spreading this message of his kingdom to more than just the 12 disciples. These 72 are likely normal Christians, not necessarily holding a position of authority or anything like that. So what we can understand from this is that the mission of God being sent by Jesus is not something just for vocational missionary or sorry vocational ministers or global missionaries but it is really a part of everyone's life as a believer if if you are a follower of Jesus you are sent by Jesus if you are a follower of Jesus you are a missionary now you may not be sent across the world but you are sent into the world let me say that again you may not be sent across the world but you are sent into the world, into your workplace, your classroom, your neighborhood, your family, your community, wherever you find yourself, you are sent, you are on mission, you are a missionary. You're a missionary. We all play different parts in the life of the church and in the mission of God, but we all have a vital part in being messengers of this kingdom. Everyone. When you bow your knee to King Jesus, you are a full citizen in the kingdom of heaven with all of the privileges that come with it, and one of those privileges is working alongside him in his kingdom message, or sorry, mission. So for the rest of this section, uh, I want to walk us through verses 2 through 11. I'm going to pull out six applications for us as royal messengers. You're like, you have 0.16 subpoints. Okay, uh, let's go. Let's do this. All right, verse 2. Let's go ahead and look at that. Chapter 10, verse 2. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, the first application for us in this is to pray. To pray. A couple of interesting things here. First, Jesus identifies a problem. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Just for simplification, the harvest is people who are ready to follow Jesus, and the laborers are people who would tell them about Jesus. Now, I'm sure that we've all seen or heard the statistics about a dwindling number of Christians in the West, including the United States. 
Now, I have heard and thought of many different reasons for why that might be so. Why are there less and less Christians around us? What what is going on? Is it, is it the postmodern culture or relativism in which there's no belief in absolute truth? Is it colleges and universities that are increasingly anti-faith? Is it the over-sexualization of our society leading to idolatry? Maybe it's capitalism and consumerism blinding us to our reality as creatures made in the image of God and not cogs in a financial machine. But, but Jesus actually has a different diagnosis here. He says the problem is not the harvest field, but the lack of laborers. He says the problem is not that there are less opportunities for people to follow him, but there are less people willing to go and tell them. The problem here is not ears to hear, it is mouths to proclaim. Church, hear this, the problem is not out there. The problem is there are not enough people that are willing to go and proclaim the mission of God. We've got to have some urgency here. We've got to. And what is Jesus' primary solution to this problem? Do a, recruit, or do a recruiting campaign? Guilt believers into being evangelists? No. He says to pray. To pray. To pray earnestly. To pray with urgency. But to pray. There is one Lord of the harvest and there is one Lord of the laborer. And we must pray to him. So practically, church, I want to invite you to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to do just what he says he wants to do here, to send laborers out into his harvest field. Most of the staff here at City Light and the City Light family of churches, as well as our sister churches and the Salt Network, have got alarms set on our phones for 10.02 a.m. You can do 10.02 p.m. if you want. I am, in, I am asleep at that time. But 10.02 a.m., which is for this very verse, Luke 10.2. And every time that that alarm goes off, we stop what we're doing and we pray. Lord, we pray this, Luke 10.2, Lord, would you send laborers into your harvest field? And so I want to invite you, church, to take out your phone and set a, an alarm every day for 10.02 and pray along with us, Lord, would you send laborers into your harvest field? And, and I'm excited to see uh, what God might do with us and how he might use those prayers and work among us. Okay, next one, verse three. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. The second application is to go. To go. You're being sent. You need to go, even into danger. I think sometimes in our primary and maybe only evangelism strategy is to invite people to church. Now, there is nothing wrong with that. In fact, that is a good thing. We should invite people into community, and if people will come, we should invite them to come with us. But here's the problem. Not everybody is going to be willing to come with, come with us. We first have to go to them. We have to go. We have to be in, in their lives, in their world, being messengers in their lives. We have to go. And then Jesus said that he is sending them as sheep among wolves. As sheep among wolves. Wolves devour sheep. Wolves are the enemy of sheep. The mission of Jesus has no borders or boundaries, and so that means the follower of Jesus has no borders or boundaries when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. There are none. Christian, you are sent into places that are hostile towards the gospel message. You are. Let's be honest about that. You are sent into places that are hostile towards the gospel 
message. Your workplace might have policies that seem to make it impossible to share the gospel, and yet you are a missionary and God has you there for a reason. Your classmates may seem like they would like to hear anything from you, but that you follow this guy named Jesus, and yet God has you there for a reason, and you are a missionary. Now, I'm not saying to not be wise. Don't go into your workplace with a bullhorn and get fired tomorrow. Like, be wise, be discerning, but remember, you are on mission. You are a missionary. You are sent to wherever you are, even among wolves, even among places that are hostile towards the gospel message. Next, verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. The third application is understand the urgency. Understand the urgency. Jesus said, don't pack your bags, don't collect your belongings, don't even greet people on the road. I think Gavin has pointed out what he has lovingly tabbed, Bo Pelini Jesus. And, and is this another Bo Pelini Jesus situation? Like, that seems rude. Like, why would you not greet someone on the road? In our context, if you didn't greet someone, like, that's just rude. Well, in, in uh, first century Eastern context, th- these greetings, even on the road, these formal greetings could take hours and hours. Now, I didn't want to take hours and hours researching why it would take hours and hours, but it would take hours and hours. The point here is that Jesus is showing his followers the urgency of the message, the mission that he is sending them on. But here's the question, and we can read this, and if we remember, again, this happened 2,000 years ago. How is this message still urgent? How could a mission that started 2,000 years ago possibly still be urgent. This doesn't make any sense. Well, a couple of things as we think about that. The mission may be 2,000 years old, but it's only relevant to lives that maybe last 70, 80, 90 years if they're lucky. The kingdom of God is made up of people who have bowed their knee to Jesus while on this earth. And we are, we're all given only a very limited time on this earth. And so by nature, that means that this message is urgent. You have no idea when you're going to draw your last breath. You have no idea when your neighbor is going to draw their last breath, when your relative is going to draw their last breath, your coworker, whoever it might be. You have no idea. And so by nature, this is an urgent message. Additionally, like Jesus is coming back. He is. And we have no idea when that is going to be. But the Bible says to stay prepared. And one of the ways that we stay prepared is to stay on mission and what he has called us to do. So church, we need to understand the urgency of this calling. We have got to. It is the most important message the world has ever heard. And we have no idea how long the world has to hear this message. It is urgent. Next one, verses 5 to 7. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever you enter a town and they receive you, eat is what is set before you. The fourth application is this. Peace and provision will be given. Peace and provision will be given. Not everyone will receive your message. 
The harvest is plentiful, and some will. Some will receive your message, but not everyone will. The followers here are to proclaim the message to all, even when some will reject it. Additionally, God is going to provide for his laborers. Remember, these disciples were to take nothing, no money bag or anything with them. So what that meant is they couldn't get a hotel for the night. They didn't have those means. They were reliant on those in these towns to provide for them. And the people in the towns had a choice to make. If they were going to show hospitality to these disciples who seemingly had nothing to offer, were they going to accept them and accept the message that they were bringing? See, Jesus took away these disciples' disciples' self-sufficiency so that all they had to offer was the message of the kingdom. That's all they had. And then these towns, they had a choice to make. Were they going to accept and show hospitality to them? Were they going uh, to, to accept the message And so, church, what we need to remember in this is that the best thing that you have to offer is the message of the gospel. That is the best thing you have. Some will receive the message and others will not. It doesn't matter if you feel like you have anything else to offer. It doesn't matter your social status, your income, whether you feel like you fit in where you are at or not. You may feel like the person nobody wants to talk to at work. You may feel like the kid nobody cares about on campus. But know, church, that the best thing you have to offer is the best thing in the entire world, which is the hope of the gospel. Peace and provision will be given. Next one, verse 9. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The fifth application is proclaim in both word and deed. In both word and deed. Deed. So the disciples are to heal the sick in these towns and to preach that the kingdom of God has come, is, is near to them. And so what happens here is their deeds, their behaviors back up the legitimacy of their words. The disciples were not only to care for these people's spiritual destiny, but also their physical needs as well. And so what that means is as Christians, we pray, we, we pray for people, we pray for healing, we pray for provision, we provide when we can, we pray for God to do a work in the lives of those around us. We also embody the kingdom values of love, mercy, justice, compassion, integrity, humility, hope. We can't preach a message, a, a, a gospel of forgiveness and not forgive. We can't preach a gospel of mercy and not be merciful. We can't preach a Jesus who embodies humility and not embody that ourselves. Our belief in the gospel and all of its implications must work its way out in how we love the world. The other side of that coin is we have to use our words as well. Deeds and words are two sides of the same coin of the mission of God. We can't simply be nice. We can't simply be merciful. We can't simply pursue justice. We must also proclaim with our words the gospel. The gospel means good news, and good news must be proclaimed. Words must be spoken. And so, we must go about our mission in word and deed, with what we do and with what we say. All right, last one, verse 10 and 11. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. The sixth application is the results are not on you. 
The results are not on you. Now, the stakes are high here. Very high. In fact, as we'll see in the next verses, the consequences of rejecting this message of grace through faith are significant. People are still stuck in their sin and under the consequences of that, including eternal separation from God and active punishment for their sin. Make no mistake, the stakes are high. There is a real curse that Jesus rescues those who follow him from. Shaking the dust off of their sandals was a way to show these towns the curse that awaits without faith in Jesus. As if to say, listen, we tried, and you didn't listen. We tried, but you didn't receive it. And so, church, the scorecard for us as believers is not results, but faithfulness. It's not results, but faithfulness. I felt discouraged and people not responding well when I tell them about Jesus or, 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 or we're talking about those things. You might have felt that too. Maybe you've allowed that to convince you that, that you shouldn't tell people the good news of Jesus, but we need to know that we are called to faithfulness. The fruitfulness is up to Jesus. We're called to faithfulness. The fruitfulness is up to Jesus. Take comfort in knowing that the results are, are not up to you and your eloquence or anything like that. So these disciples, these followers of Jesus, are sent into these towns with this vital message. And like, like I mentioned, the stakes are very high with the message they're bringing with them, which brings us to the second section this morning, the royal ramifications. The royal ramifications. Look with me at verses 12 to 16. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. To the one who hears you, hears me. And to the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So Jesus here, Names a few towns. The first ones are Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. Now, all of these cities are infamous for their idol worship and their rejection of the God of the Bible, as well as a lack of any form of discernible reality. These towns were literally the worst of the worst, especially in the eyes of the Jewish people. However, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, those are all Jewish towns. In fact, they're the Jewish towns who have thus far benefited the most from Jesus' ministry and healing and exercising of demons. These cities would have been considered blessed because this is where Jesus was doing his work. But Jesus pronounces woes on them. In fact, he says it's going to be worse for them than for these other cities that clearly had issues. And, and why is that? Because he says that they have not repented and turned to him, despite all of the evidence and all of the mighty works done in them. Despite that, they have not humbled themselves. They have not repented and turned to him. Now, not necessarily the primary point, I don't think, of what Jesus is talking about here, but I think from this, we need to realize uh, from this that we can't predict or expect where the fruit of repentance and belief might come from. We can't, we, we can't predict where that's going to come from. In fact, you might find more fruit in a mosque than a suburban neighborhood. You might find more fruit in a bar than a boardroom. You might find more fruit in a prison than on a golf course. You might find more fruit in people that don't look or think like you than those 
that are in your comfort zone, people that you feel like you, you have relationship with, that you have influence with, that you uh, have a lot of things in common with. We cannot predict nor expect where we will find the fruit of belief and repentance. Additionally, Jesus talks a lot about judgment here and that this judgment will be unbearable for these cities who have not turned to Jesus. And this makes us confront face-to-face the real consequences at stake in light of the message that we carry as followers of Christ. Church, we need to know that Judgment Day is a real date on the calendar. Jesus is coming back to judge for the final time. For those who have responded in faith to him, he will gather to himself. And for those who have not, he will cast away into what the book of Revelation calls the lake of fire. Hell is not a metaphorical place. Judgment day is not an allegory. These are real things that we are all destined for outside of the grace of Jesus Christ that can only be received through faith. And to be received through faith, people must hear. And to hear, somebody has got to tell them. And so a question that comes with the reality of this, why, if hell is real, do we not talk about it all the time? If it's real, why doesn't every conversation surrounding Jesus start out with the reality of hell? Well, first, the Bible tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It is not the fear of consequence that usually drives us to faith in Jesus, but beholding the person and work of Jesus that leads to faith. However, it is sometimes necessary to behold our destiny without Jesus to truly appreciate our destiny with him, to appreciate his kindness, his mercy, his beauty, his love, and his grace. We are saved, and it's important for us to see what it is that he has saved us from. So church, the real existence of a real judgment day and a real hell should not result in fear for you. Nor should it result in fear in your messaging about Jesus. But it should put in us a sense of urgency as those around us need to be made aware of the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of sins, of the eternal place that Jesus has prepared for those whose faith is in him. The ramifications are real, And the stakes are high, and so our urgency should also be real, and the importance of this high. It's these woes that Jesus pronounces to these cities that show us the reality of the judgment awaiting those who do not respond with belief and repentance. But in the next scene, Jesus is going to show his disciples why they can rejoice in him. Look with me at our last verses, verses 17 to 20. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven." The last section this morning is this, rejoicing in your royal residency, rejoicing in your royal residency. Okay, can you imagine, can you imagine being sent out by Jesus here? Like, you've seen, so imagine you're a follower of his, right? 
And you've seen him just do some crazy stuff. Like, he's been healing people. He brought some dude back from the dead. He's making food appear out of nowhere. He's exercising demons. And, and you're watching this. But this whole time, you've been, you've been a spectator of this. And now he's like, hey, you, go. You're going to go do the same. You go heal. You go exercise demons. And you're like, oh, oh hold on, hold on, hold on. What, what do you mean? Like, what am I supposed to do? Like, I didn't even take a class. Shouldn't you send me to Hogwarts first or something? Like, I don't know. I don't know how to do this. And then you're, you're, you're faithful and you go out and you do the two by two thing and, and, and you go out and it works. You're healing people. Demons are being exercised. You would be excited. You would be pumped up. You'd be like, yes, I just found out I'm an X-Man. Like, this is awesome. Look at all this stuff that I can do. And then you come back and you're excited. And, okay, maybe that's not exactly what the disciples are feeling, but they are pumped. They realize that they've been given this power by Jesus and through Jesus. They knew it was coming from him, and they are excited. They are rejoicing. And then Jesus gets a little weird on them for a second. He tells them about seeing Satan fall like lightning and that he gave them authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and have all the power over the enemy. What Jesus is showing them is that his authority, his authority is their authority and that there is actually no power in the universe that they are subject to because there is no power in the universe that he is subject to. Now, does this mean that believers can get bit by poisonous snakes and scorpions without being affected? Well, there's only one way to find out, so we're going to take a field trip to the zoo, and we're all going to go in the desert dome in that place with all the rattlesnakes, and we're just going to see what happens. I mean, I guess whoever's Christian is going to survive, and whoever is not is not. And so we're just going to, no, we're not going to do that, and please do not put God to the test on this. He might heal you, but he might not. Uh, what is likely going on here is that Jesus is showing us that all authority has been given to him. And so we have authority to overcome even the most hostile forces in our world. We are completely safe in God's hands, even in physical death. And yes, if you get bit by a poisonous snake, it may end up in your physical death. But even in physical death, we are safe in his hands. We are not subject the authority of the world any longer. And this is where real rejoicing comes. Jesus says that all of these things are awesome, but they pale in comparison with what you should really be rejoicing about, and that is that your names are written in heaven. Your names are written in heaven. The ancient Roman world kept meticulous records, and when they did a census, they would write your name down, which meant that you were a Roman citizen with all the rights and privileges and responsibilities that that brought. Nobody could erase your name from that census, and nobody could take those rights from you, even more so. Names being written in heaven are like a royal census from heaven. If your name is written in heaven, you are a citizen of heaven, even right now. Even right now, with all of the rights and privileges and responsibilities, nothing can blot your name out of that book, and it is in this that we can rejoice. Your name, Christian, is written in heaven. Nothing's going to erase that thing. Nothing is. So what that means is all the power in the world, all the wealth in the world, all the popularity in the world is not even worth mentioning compared to the joy that comes with having your name written in heaven. Church, in Jesus, all of our longings and insecurities are met. Your identity, you are an adopted child of God. Your security, you are a citizen of heaven. 
Your past, your sins have been forgiven. Your present, your name is written right now. Your future, your name will never be blotted out. All of your insecurities, all of them are met in Jesus. We can have confidence and we can rejoice no matter what our circumstances on this side of eternity because through faith in Jesus, our names have been written in heaven. And because of that security, because of that truth, we can urgently share. We can urgently share the good news of the kingdom with this world that so desperately needs it without fear of rejection or persecution or indifference, not because those things might not happen, they will, but because we are secure, because we know that our names are written in heaven. Let's share our hope with a world that so desperately needs it. Amen? Let me say one last thing, and then I'll sit down. If you are here this morning, and you've been wrestling with this whole Jesus thing, can I just encourage you that this Jesus is real? The consequences of sin are real. His grace and his forgiveness are real. For you to have your name written in heaven is simply a matter of faith. Faith, belief. There is no effort that you can make that will put your name there. There is also no sin that you could have committed that disqualifies you from your name being able to be written down in heaven. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Your name will be written in heaven. Confess with your mouth. Believe with your heart. I would invite you this morning to accept this free gift of grace by placing your faith in Jesus. And if you do, you can rejoice in the same things that Jesus tells his followers here in the Gospel of Luke can, they can rejoice in. Your name is written in heaven. It will never be blotted out. Repent, turn to Jesus, believe in him for salvation, and then rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, thank you that someone, somewhere, thought that this message of the kingdom was urgent enough to share it with us. And I thank you that in that and through that, you opened our eyes, you opened our ears, you opened our heart to you, to placing our faith in you. And God, I pray for anybody in this room who's wrestling with, who is this Jesus? Who is this person? Jesus, would you open their eyes and their ears and their heart to you? Would they place their faith in you? Would they say, Lord, I am a sinner, but you have given grace freely. You are God. You are Lord, and I am your follower. Oh, Lord, would you use us as a church on your kingdom mission. God, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Oh, Lord, would you send laborers into your harvest field? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.